Hey church, want to thank you again uh, for joining me uh, this this week. It's it's great to to know you're behind the camera and and you're there. Uh, I want to just kind of set up what we're doing today. Today we are beginning a uh, two-part kind of short series on Easter. Easter part one and the next Sunday Easter uh, part two. And then following Easter, we're going to be doing um, a five, six-week uh, series called Do Not Be Afraid or, or Not Afraid. And we're going to be studying the idea of uh, fear and overcoming that and, and what exactly that looks like. So I'm excited to preach through that with you as well. There is a, a part of that series uh, entitled A Resurrection Reason to Not Be Afraid. And so what our plan right now is, is that uh, whatever is our first week gathering back together, I'm going to move the resurrection reason to not be afraid to that Sunday. And we're going to have an Easter style service on that first Sunday that we can all be back together. So I look forward to seeing you uh, again, hopefully in early May. Uh, we'll make announcements as that Sunday approaches. Uh, great to see you. Uh, God bless. Your leadership is praying for you uh, and loves you very much and is looking forward to, to seeing you again soon. Let's pray and then get into week one of the series. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for the day. Uh, we want to thank you uh, for being uh, totally in control. And uh, our faith is in you. Our hope is in you. Our joy is in you. And I want to pray for every person watching this uh, that may be feeling afraid, anxious, unsure. Uh, just pray that this morning, uh, today, our faith would be renewed and that we would find our joy, hope, and our peace in you. Again, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There's an old preacher joke about a young girl that was writing a paper for school, and she went to her father and asked, Dad, what is the difference between anger and exasperation? And the father said, well, I suppose it's just a matter of degree. Let me show you what, what I mean. And the father went to the phone, and he just dialed a number at random. A man answered on the other phone, and the father said, hello, is Melvin there? And the man answered, no one is living here by the name of Melvin. Why don't you uh, check on the numbers before you dial them? And the father said, see, that man was probably in the middle of something. He wasn't happy with our phone call. Uh, we annoyed him. You, you can see that. And he said, now watch. The father dialed the number again. He said, hello, is Melvin there? And the man this time kind of exploded with anger. He said, now look here, you just dialed this number and I told you there is no Melvin here. You got a lot of guts calling again and he slammed the receiver down. The father turned to his daughter and he said, you can see that man was angry. That's what anger looks like. Now he says, let me show you exasperation. And he dialed the number a third time and this time a voice roared on the other end and said, hello, what on earth do you want? And the father calmly said, Hello, this is Melvin. Have I received any phone calls? I can almost hear the laughter on the other end. I, I can almost hear you, hear you laughing. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to John 11. What we're going to see today as we study the Easter story part one is a growing angst and a growing exasperation and a growing anger that is directed at Jesus. And we're going to be in John chapter 11, like I said. But before we get to John 11, I want to try to set the stage for you and I about how we get to the spot that we're in uh, in that text. In John 6, uh, Jesus takes a few small loaves and, and some fish and he feeds 5,000 people in that story. Coming out of that story, he gives a little sermonette and, and says that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. And he goes on to say, whoever eats this bread will have life. Shortly after that, in verse 41, it says this, at this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And what we see in John chapter 6 is that the, the, the religious leaders begin to get angry with Jesus for trying to establish himself as deity. In John chapter 8, Jesus has this interaction with a woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, the people in that story are ready to stone this woman, and Jesus steps in and he says, let whoever is without sin cast the first stone. He then goes on to talk in a little message, a little sermonette again, about that he has come to set the people free. And the religious folks, again, get angsty and angry with Jesus, and they say, hey, listen, we've never been slaves to anyone. He says, listen, if you sin, if you've ever sinned, you are a slave. But Jesus says, I am the son and I have come to set you free. And they end up angry with Jesus in this story in John chapter eight for referring to them as slaves. And you can feel the tension begin to rise. In John nine, Jesus heals a man that has been born blind and he heals him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law enter into a full-blown investigation, not just into the healing, but because the healing happened on the Sabbath day, which was a violation of the rules. And Jesus follows up the healing uh, with a message on spiritual blindness. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are again offended because their job as religious leaders was to identify and see the Messiah and teach people to follow him. And so when people begin to hear Jesus teach and they begin to see some of his miracles, they begin to identify him as the Messiah. And the religious leader's argument is, no, 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 he can't be the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, we would have seen him, we would have identified him, and we would have instructed you to follow him. And Jesus kind of points out in this story, well, not if you were blind, not if you were spiritually blind. And, and, and the attitude becomes, Jesus, how dare you? Are you saying we're blind? Are you saying we're blind? And you can feel the tension rise. And then in chapter 10, Jesus gives a, another kind of sermon with all the shepherd lingo. And he makes this a really, really amazing, uh, a series of really amazing statements. I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through will be saved. And then he changes the imagery a little bit. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And all the good Jewish men and women listening to Jesus that, that day, all of those people that had attended Sunday school, they remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And they're thinking, Jesus, are you saying that you're, like, you're, part, like, like you're the Lord? You're part of, of, of this deity? Is that what you're claiming? And, and verse 19 says that these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the saints of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I find it humorous when people claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. I am the light of the world to help you see. I am the word become flesh. I am the good shepherd. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, he claimed it on a regular basis. And you can feel this tension rising with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then we arise, uh, arrive in John chapter 11. And this story 
is kind of a breaking point in the story. In, in John 11, Jesus has been alerted that a good friend of his, Lazarus, has gotten sick. As a matter of fact, Mary uh, sends Jesus word, and literally what she says is, the one that you love is sick. And Jesus loves this family, and Jesus cares about this family, and they love him. And Jesus declares to his disciples that day, this sickness will not result in death. But listen to what the text says then in verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. This is interesting. Why delay for two days? Well, the story goes on to tell us, tell us that one of the reasons Jesus delays in coming is that he knows that this story that we're about to study together is going to result in his glory and in the glory of the Father. And it's a reminder. Sometimes when we think God is late, and sometimes when we think God is not showing up, in reality, God is working his plan, and we have to trust his plan. A lot of times we think he's late. A lot of times we think he's not showing up. And a lot of times God is saying, be patient. I have a plan and I'm working the, the plan. And it, it's just a paradigm shift for us. See, I think for most Christians, it is not hard for us to trust God's goodness. We know that he's good. For a lot of us, it's not hard to trust his righteousness. We know that he's righteous. For a lot of us, it's not hard to trust his character. We know about his character. For many of us, even all of us that, that are followers of Jesus, for us, it's hard to trust his timing. And I want to encourage you this morning that God's timing is always connected to his plan and God's timing uh, is, is always connected to, to, to what he's doing. We are called to trust him. So God, Jesus is indeed working a plan, and I want to show you what happens late. It is a reminder that Jesus is never late. Jesus is always right on time. And so he goes to his friends, and, and here's what happens. We're going to study this together. John 11, uh, starting in verse 17. We're going to read through verse 44. So it's kind of a chunk of scripture. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them at the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she set out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who's come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, she replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once again deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe in me, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, that, I, I knew that you always hear me. And I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I love this story. It's in this story that you see the closeness that Jesus has with this family. And it's in this story that you see the compassionate spirit and nature of Jesus. Jesus arrives and Mary and Martha are visibly upset with Jesus. If you had not delayed, if you had been here, our brother would still be alive. They take Jesus to the tomb and look at what he, look at what he says in verse 35. Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in your Bible. It is also the most perplexing because we know as the story has unfolded that Jesus knew all along exactly what he is going to do. He has said at the very beginning of the story that, this, uh, that Lazarus is not going to die. He said that to the disciples. Later on, he identifies Lazarus as asleep. When he sees the sisters, he says, your brother will rise again. He, know, he knows what he's about to do. He knows the miracle he's about to perform. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet the text says he pauses for a moment and he weeps. He cries. He mourns. Why? Why? When you know what you're going to do, you know you're about to rock this house and you're about to rock this family. Why pause and weep? I say to Christian families that are grieving, that are going through hard times, I say to them all the time, Jesus is crying today but he's not crying for your loved one. Your loved one right now is healed. Your loved one right now is restored. Your loved one right now is in the presence of Jesus himself. He's not crying for them. They're walking the streets of gold. They're swimming in the sea as clear as crystal. They're enjoying the choirs of angels. They're feasting at the banquet table. They are reunited with one's loved ones that have gone before. They are with Jesus. He's not crying for them. He's crying for you. That your heart is broken. He sees your pain. That you are grieving. That you are going through the loss of a loved one. This is a demonstration of Jesus's compassion. This is a demonstration of his empathy. And if I can put on my preacher hat just for a moment, and I, I suppose I will, I think that our culture could work on our empathy a little bit, our compassion a little bit during this time, our compassion for the single mom that cannot work right now, 
Our compassion for the parents that are trying to make it at home, maybe homeschooling for the first time. Our compassion for the older person that is concerned about their health. I think it is too easy to say when you are young, don't be so concerned about this virus. I think it's too easy to say when you're still getting paid, don't be so concerned about finances. It's too easy to say when you are an introvert that this is not a big deal. My my wife has been uh, joking uh, throughout this thing. She's an introvert. And she's been joking that I've been training my whole life for this. Right, right. This is not that difficult for her, but for a more extroverted person like our son Sam, and, and even for me, it's extremely difficult. Empathy and compassion comes when we place ourselves in another person's shoes and we see things from their perspective. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this story. He believes the resurrection. He knows what he's about to do, and yet he pauses, he weeps, and he cries because he's compassionate and he's empathetic. So this story demonstrates his empathy. But even more importantly than that, this story demonstrates his power. I love the the way this story unfolds, how Jesus goes to the tomb and he prays this amazing prayer. He says, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said it for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you have sent me. And then he lays it all down and he says, Lazarus, come out. And here's the amazing thing that happens. Lazarus comes out. You've never been to a funeral like this before. It is absolutely amazing. And to know with your head and to believe with your heart that our Lord Jesus Christ, with the shout of one single command, holds power over death, it changes everything. Did you know that the Bible says that when Jesus returns the second time, he's going to be shouting a command? And we're not told what the command is, but upon that command, the Bible says the dead, those that have previously passed, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those that are alive will go up to meet him in the clouds and we will spend forever with the Lord in heaven. He had power over Lazarus' death. He had power in a couple chapters from, from John. In a couple chapters, he'll hold power over his own death and he'll hold power over yours. It changes everything, does it not? This is the miracle. Jesus delays so that God's glory can be seen. He wants us to know this story. So Jesus delays, and then he shows up. He's empathetic. He's compassionate. He weeps. And then he does what seems like the impossible. He raises his friend from the dead. He holds power over death. Let me show you what happens next in verse 45, because I think it's significant. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting. We got to have a meeting at the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here this man uh, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
I want you to see the reaction to this miracle. It's what's really, really interesting to me. We're told first that many saw the miracle. Many saw Jesus per, uh, conquer death and, and hold power uh, over Lazarus' tomb. Many saw that and they put their faith in Jesus. They believed. This is the right response. When you see someone conquer the grave in such a dramatic fashion, this is the right response. And can we pause just for a minute? The, the right response is to believe that this miracle feels different than the other miracles, right? It feels different than Jesus feeding 5,000. It feels different than him healing, healing a man born blind. It certainly feels different than Jesus turning water into wine. And it's not different because of Jesus, all the miracles demonstrate Jesus' power and authority. This feels different because of us. You know, the top two fears that people have in our culture are public speaking and death. So the nightmare situation for somebody is having to speak at a, at a funeral. And fear of death is a powerful reality for almost everyone. I think one of the things that COVID-19 has done is that it's reminded all of us how scary of an idea death can be. How scary of an idea it can be. But in this story, Jesus shows up and he demonstrates his power over this thing that intimidates us, over this thing that scares us, over, over this thing that we feel powerless over. Jesus demonstrates his power over it. And here is the lesson in that. He is bigger than the grave. He is greater than death. He is stronger than it all. Than, than it all. And so people's response to this story is they put their faith in him and shouldn't they? If Jesus demonstrates power over everything, then all the, the power over death, then he has power over everything. It's what Jesus said one time. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I looked up the word all, and it literally means all, everything. He has power and authority. And in this moment, standing just steps from an empty tomb, the crowd that day believed in Jesus, and they followed him. And that is the right response. Here's the truth. A focus on death will fill our heart with fear. And right now we're kind of surrounded by that storyline and it's hard to not be focused on it, but a focus on death will fill our heart with fear. A focus on the empty tomb, a focus on the resurrection will fill our hearts with hope, will fill our hearts with joy, and will fill our hearts with peace. And so next Sunday, we are not going to be able to meet publicly as a church family. But next Sunday, you better believe we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that as we celebrate the resurrection, we would believe. We would believe in the resurrection and as a result of that belief, we would experience a peace that surpasses understanding. We would experience a calm in the storm. We would experience some rest in the truth of the resurrection. And this is the response that makes the most sense. 
It is the response called belief. But there is another response in this text uh, that, that I want to focus on just for a minute. The other response might make less sense to you until we unpack it a little bit. The response is anger. That ultimately the plot to take Jesus's life was born out of this miracle. Why? Why on earth would it make anybody mad that Jesus raised somebody from the dead and conquered death and conquered disease? Why would that make somebody mad? It's good, right? It's awesome. Why the frustration? Why the angst? And why the anger? Well, they tell us. The text says that they were worried that more and more people were going to follow Jesus and the Romans would get worried and they would take away their nation and their temple. In other words, it was better for them to, for, it was better to them for Jesus to die than for them to give up their power and their control. A little bit of irony in this story, about 35 years later, AD 70, the Romans did tear down the temple and did destroy the city. But ultimately, the plot to take Jesus' life developed over this one singular issue, a desire for power and a desire for, for control and a desperate attempt to keep that power and keep control for themselves. It's important for us to understand this because it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus. They did believe. They believed he raised Lazarus from the dead, but they didn't want to give up their own power and they didn't want to give up their own control and that always leads to anger. I don't know about you, but over the last couple of weeks, there have been multiple times when I have felt frustrated, when I have felt angry, when life has felt out of control. And you know why you and I have that feeling? Because this virus has revealed to us how little control we all have. And anger is almost always tied to control. In parenting, you understand you're not fighting with your kids about Legos or video games, or screen time. What you're fighting with your kids about is who's in control of the family. In your marriage, you're not arguing about the toilet seat or remote controls. You understand that, right? You're, you're, you're arguing about control. At work, it's not that project. The, the, the project might be the topic that, that you're arguing about, but it's not really the project. It's about who's in control. A loss of control uh, and a, a loss of that feeling of control, I should say, almost always leads to anger because we fight for control. We fight to be in charge. And can I give you some good news this morning? Someone better than me and someone better than you is in charge. They are in control. And his name is Jesus. And he is completely righteous and he is completely all-powerful, and he is full of grace, and he is in control. And you and I this morning, we are called to believe that. We are called to belief, to believe that Jesus has not lost control. On the contrary, he is in complete control. I used to think that the opposite of belief was unbelief. Well, either you're a believer or, or you don't believe. Really, the opposite of belief is anger. And it's an anger that fights for control. Belief rests in the idea that God is in control. It rests in the idea that God is in control. He's always been in control. He'll always be in control. And we rest in that truth. And I'm telling you, when you rest in the idea that God is still in control, there's joy in that place. There's peace in that place and there's hope in that place. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you
for being in control. You haven't lost control of anything. And my prayer this morning, my, my prayer for all of us, is that we would believe, that we would believe that truth, and that we would find the joy, hope, and peace that always flows from faith. So may we, may we today, as we're watching this video, may we re-express our faith and our hope and our trust in you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Right now is an opportunity for us to celebrate communion together in our homes and to join a worldwide movement of Christians that are doing that exact thing. And you'll, find, you'll have some bread that represents Jesus' body and some juice that represents his blood. And this is an opportunity for us to remember this moment in time where it appeared that God had kind of lost control, that his son's on the cross, his son is dying, and it's like, wow, has God lost control? And then three days later, he rose from the dead, reminding us that he is in control and that he has a plan. And sometimes what we view as God being late or God not showing up is just the execution of his plan. And so we want to remember that today. And we want to find joy in that and hope in that and peace in that. So you, you uh, receive communion together where, wherever you're at and you just remember God is in control. I love you guys. And I am looking forward to worshiping with you again, again together in this room. Uh, I'm glad we can connect this way, but I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of you. Uh, God bless. May the peace of God that, that comes from knowing he's in control rest on each and every one of you. I'll see you soon.